There's so many things that I love about being a part of Northridge Life Church. And there's a lot of things that are very obvious that happen here that are exciting. Um, you know, when we have a baptism or, or things of that nature. Uh, you know, we, the things we did with the youth group last week, great stuff. But there's other things that happen here that happen kind of behind the scenes. And you don't really get to, to see them uh, that much. And one of those things is that, that, that when we founded Northridge Life Church, we made a commitment that one of our main missions was going to be uh, to raise up young uh, men uh, of God that really wanted to pursue God in ministry. And, um, and we did everything we could and everything that we had the resources right now to do to make that happen. So again, behind the scenes, you may not know that this, but there, there are people that I meet with throughout the week uh, that, that are, we're training to preach and, and learn to think pastorally and things like that. And that's happening. And you know what the goal of that? That's not just so we can have a collection of young preachers. We, we believe that God's going to use that someday for us to plant churches all over the city, the state, the country, and that the gospel is going to go out from this little bitty church to the whole world someday through the, through the efforts right now that we're doing to raise up preachers. I, I, I'm pretty excited about that. And, and so, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. And so one of the things that is a little more obvious that we've done with that is uh, back about a little less than a year ago, um, after months and months of prayer and conversations, we brought Paul Brooks on as our pastoral intern, our first pastoral intern that was actually a full-time pastoral intern. And I, it would take me all day long to list all the stuff that Paul d- does. Uh, pastoral intern is code word for gopher, for uh, guys that do like, like the, the, the low man on the totem pole work. He, you know, he, it, we only have communion every week because he sets that up. He cleans the church. He takes care of the landscaping around here. He does all kinds of things. And we're so very grateful for Paul. But one of the things that, that you may not see so often is that Paul, every single month, every single month, he crafts a sermon. And, um, and, and he has, we've been watching him, and he, he puts those together, and he, and he just really is diligent about making sure that, that he's learning things. We'll sit down, and I'll give him some feedback, and he just gets better and better and better. And so um, you're going to often see Paul up here because, we, man, I'm telling you, he is, God's doing something in him to prepare him for a much, much, much greater work. And so I, I wanted to, to, usually we just hand him the mic, but I really wanted to, to uh, introduce him today and let you know kind of the process that God is doing in his life so that you could celebrate with him. And I know, I've, I've actually heard this message, it's about to come to you, and I know you're going to be completely blessed with it. So can you show your love to Paul Brooks this morning as he comes to the, to the pulpit? See if I can hobble up here a little bit, huh? Thank you, brother. Love you, dude. Yeah, that's how we roll in this family. We don't shake hands. We hug. It's what real men do when they love Jesus, right? Yeah, if you would please stand with me. I know that I'm sorry to have to keep making you get up and get down. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 uh, through 32 this morning. Excuse you. Um, and uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible in the seat pocket in front of you. Um, and we're going to be on page 16 in those Bibles. If you don't own a Bible or have one in your home, that Bible in the seat pocket in front of you is our free gift to you. Uh, We believe that that word is living and active, the actual infallible word of God. We believe it has the power to transform and change lives and families for generations and generations to come. We want you to have that in your home, to have that transformation 
happen in your life as well this morning. Um, as many of you know, or some of you know rather, uh, we've been engaged in a six-part series about uh, the foundational characters in Genesis. And last week, Pastor Mark talked to us about uh, Father Abraham and his son Isaac. And he told you about the, the story about uh, God testing Abraham uh, who, uh, by asking him to sacrifice his son Isaac and how God was merciful through his obedience and spared Isaac. And this week, we're going to take a look at one of Isaac's two sons, Jacob, and how the gospel plays itself out in his life. So if you would look with me, please, Genesis chapter 32, verse 22 there. It says that same night he arose and took his two wives, two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford at Yebuk. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything that he had, and Jacob was alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, the man touched Jacob's hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then the man said, let me go, for day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And the man said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But the man said, why is it you asked my name? And there the man blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. And therefore to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because the man touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So you may be seated, thus says the reading of God's word. Um, the story of Jacob, I'm going to submit to you this morning a, a factual statement that the story of Jacob is absolute unequivocal proof that there is life after death, and that that life after death is fuller than any before it. You see, his life story is essentially all our life stories, and it can be broken down into three distinct parts. The first, Jacob's life before death. That is Jacob's life from birth to his exile in the land of Laban, his uncle. The second part, the encounter that changed everything at the ford of Jabok. And finally, his life after death and the birth of the new man, Israel. So let's talk about his life before death. You see, Jacob's story goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 25, where we learn that Jacob was born the younger pair of twins to a barren woman. You see, the scripture tells us that this wasn't a fairy tale pregnancy either, not that any pregnancies are fairy tale, right? Uh, in chapter 25, verse 22, the children struggled together within her, and she said, if this is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And what do you think God had to say about this? Oh, it's okay, Rebecca. It's just two nations in your belly. And these two nations will be divided. That means separate and at odds with one another. And here's an important proclamation to remember. The older will serve the younger. Now, moms here in this room can attest to the fact that even when it's just one baby in your belly, it often feels like two warring nations inside of there. But Rebecca here actually has God Almighty himself telling her that her assumptions are correct. The two boys were born. Esau first. That makes him the older, in case you were curious. He came out all hairy, looking like Chewy, the Chewbacca, you know, from Star Wars. Uh, then Jacob, the younger, he came out a little bit prettier than that, less hairy, of course, uh, grabbing at his brother's heel. And now it's important for us to recognize something that it's important for us to note that Jacob's name in Hebrew carries a connotation of deceiver or thief or manipulator with it. And Jacob was named as a, a grabber of things that didn't rightly belong to him. And he was given this name from birth. He was given a sin identity from birth. As, and that's how it is with all of us. And as as time went by, the boys proved to be two completely 
different men, even though they were twins. And I find this, I find this fascinating that two people, same mother, same father, and oftentimes even from the same egg, can have two completely distinct and separate personalities. One, of, one set of twins that we all know and love around this joint are, are these two fine-looking gentlemen right here, the Sharp Twins, Cameron and Jason. And when I first met these two young men, I had no idea that they were even related. And I mean that for real. I had no idea that they were related. It came as a shock to me. Because they were so completely different from one another. Their identities and their personalities were so unique. You see, Cameron's the, the strong intellectual type, the make stuff with your hands kind of guy, the, the kind of brilliance that we see in future engineers, doctors, and, and, and inventors. While, while Jason was also strong, equally brilliant, but more artistically creative, the kind that makes him a really awesome musician. I'm, I'm sorry y'all didn't get to hear him this morning, but uh, he really is amazing in that talent. And Jason seemed more outgoing and more sociable, while Cameron seemed a little bit quieter, more mildly introverted. And the two men, same mother, same father, but completely different in practically every single way. And so, too, it was with Esau and Jacob. They were, they were no different. You see, Esau was a man of the field. He was an explorer of the wilderness. He liked to go hunting and go fishing. He liked hanging out with his dad. While Jacob was a quiet, thoughtful man who liked the indoors and enjoyed cooking in the company of his mom. Hey, don't laugh. I'm that guy. <laughs> and, of course, their differences didn't stop there. Esau was the firstborn, and, and in their customs, in their culture, uh, that meant that he had the birthright, and that meant a double, uh, a double take of the, the inheritance, a double portion of the inheritance. A certain favoritism was shown to Esau that wasn't shown to Jacob by the surrounding culture. And I'm sure Jacob wasn't too thrilled about this either. His, his brother getting twice the inheritance, first dibs on everything in the family, right? First dibs on seconds and whatnot, all for being born, what, a millisecond sooner than he was? In fact, we know for certain that he wasn't happy about it, so much so that at some point in, in Jacob's life, he actually tricked his brother into selling him his birthright for nothing more than a bowl of lentil soup and some bread. See, the, the scripture tells us that, that Esau despised his birthright. That means that Esau, he didn't value his position in his father's house. He didn't understand what it truly meant to be a son. He didn't get the gravity of that. Esau had a sense of entitlement that turned the stomach of his younger brother. And so this character thing for, for Jacob looks to be a very hard concept for him to kind of wrap his mind around. Indeed, he's named a deceiver, a grabber from birth, and it looks, it looks as on the surface as though he is hell-bent on living up to his name. The Bible then tells us that as Isaac, their father, was getting older, in the days of this earth, he felt his strength fleeing him, and he was going blind, that, that Isaac called his son Esau, and he said, Esau, come here. I want, you to, I want you to go out into the field, and I want you to go hunt me some game, cook it up the way I like it, bring it to me, and then I'm going to bless you, my son. And so, of course, when you live in a tent city, nothing is secret to anybody, right? So Rebecca hears this, overhears this conversation, and she waits until Esau leaves to go hunting, and then she grabs Jacob, and she comes up with a little scheme of her own to help her favorite son, Jacob, secure that blessing. Jacob, come here, my son. She tells him, go and grab two goats, okay? Slaughter them. I want you to take the lambskins. Put them on you, okay? Because that tells you how hairy that Esau was, right? You've got to be a pretty hairy dude to have lambskins on your arms uh, in order to convince somebody that you're you. And, and go ahead and put those lambskins on your arm, and then I want you to go and, and talk to your father and secure the blessing and have him bless you. Now, Jacob's a little leery of this plan. First off, he doesn't think that, you know, his voice is deep enough to secure that, to make his dad think that he's actually his brother, nor is he hairy enough to do that. But he goes ahead and he listens to his mama anyway. He goes ahead and he, he goes in and he secures the blessing. And he quite literally, now Jacob has quite literally managed to live up to his name, literally pulling over the wool over his father's eyes and stealing his brother's blessing. So now Jacob has managed to live up to his name, the great deceiver, the great grabber. And, and Esau 
Esau is not, not happy about this one little bit. It's important to note that the blessing here, the blessing and the birthright are two, two completely different things. In their culture, the blessing went to the firstborn son, and it didn't matter uh, if anybody else had something to say about that. It was his birthright. But the blessing, on the other hand, I want you to, to keep this in your mind for later, too. The blessing, on the other hand, was something that the father gave willingly to whomever he chose. And in case you were wondering why Isaac couldn't just simply take the, the blessing back from Jacob, who had stolen the blessing, they believed in their culture that when they spoke a blessing over somebody, that it was so prophetic that there was no stopping it, there was no changing it. So it wasn't something he could just magically take back and then give to Esau, where he tells us, I have blessed him, my son, and indeed he will be blessed. And Esau was definitely not happy about this. He's he stomps to the ground and kicks the dirt and says, isn't it right that my brother is named Jacob, the deceiver, the grabber, the liar? And then he proceeds to comfort himself by plotting to murder his brother after his father passes away. Lucky for him, they still live in tents. And Rebecca again overhears Esau's plot. She tells her son, my son, I love you. In order for you to live, you must go for your brother's anger burns against you. And so this time Jacob listens to his mother once again. And he runs away to go live with his uncle in the far country. And on his way there, we see Jacob has his first encounter with God in a dream. God tells Jacob that he will bless him. He says in verse 13 there, uh, chapter 28, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. And in you... And your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Wow. Isn't that an amazing promise that God just made? Does anybody else remember from last week that that sounds really, really odd, oddly close and similar to what God promised Abraham? Does that sound familiar to y'all? Man, y'all ain't awake this morning, are you? Uh, Okay, there you go. Thank you. A little bit of help here is all I need. But didn't, uh, so we notice that that looks exactly the same as, as what God promised J- uh, Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And like with Abram, God blessed Jacob because he wanted to. Let's look at the big picture of Jacob's life and scope here right now surrounding this little encounter. Jacob has just stolen the blessing from his brother. And because Esau wants to kill him, he's now on the run, literally a fugitive, running for his very life. Jacob wasn't reading the scriptures. He wasn't feeding the homeless. Jacob wasn't crying out to God, begging for his mercy. Jacob's behavior certainly didn't do a thing to merit God's surprise visit here. But what happens? God just showed up. And why did God God choose to come to him? Well, Romans tells us that God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he will have compassion upon whom he will have compassion. God chooses a bum like this guy to have compassion on for no other reason than his own great goodness. And this is what separates Christianity from all the other world religions. You see, Martin Lloyd-Jones said it best when he said that religion, religion is man searching for God. And Christianity, well, Christianity is God seeking man, manifesting himself to him and drawing himself unto him. We see Jacob was so moved by this encounter that he, he builds an altar to worship God. And he makes a, a sort of pact with God in Genesis 28, 20 here. Look with me. It says, then Jacob made a vow saying, if... If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give, I will give you a full tenth to you. 
So in response to God's goodness, Jacob says, man, I'll tell you what, God, uh, I'll tell you what, if, if you, you do what I want you to do, and if, if things go well with me, and if you deliver on the kind of life that I want to live, uh, if you make all of my dreams come true and everything just goes really well with me and I get to come back to this place, uh, on the day that I receive the award for best life ever in my acceptance speech, I'll make sure to tell everybody, I thank God for everything that he did for me, and I'll give you just like the smallest portion of the billions that you've given me through blessing, right? Sound familiar to anybody? I, I too have made a pact like that a time or two in my life, I, I must confess and admit. And it, that's not to say that that wasn't a sincere in, in real uh, encounter that wasn't a, a real sincere response because we see Jacob seems to be rather committed after this encounter. And like many of us, when we have our first encounter with God, Jacob moves on with his life and tries to walk out this newfound faith in God in his own strength. And he attempts to lead a moral and honorable life. And Jacob makes a pretty good go of it for a while at his uncle Laban's place, makes a deal to work for seven years for his favorite wife's hand in marriage, works those seven years diligently only to have him, himself be fooled on his wedding night and somehow get roped into a marriage to Leah, Rachel's older brother. And then he has to work another seven years. Sister, not brother. Yeah, wrong book, right? <laughs> that ever happened to you a couple, couple times? Yeah, thanks for the correction. I appreciate that. That would be sister. Sister, I want to be very clear there. <laughs> so as I was saying before, I, I weirdly and strangely interrupted myself. It's God's way of reminding me that it's not, it's not my word that, that speaks truth here this morning. It's his word that speaks truth. Thank you for the levity, Lord. You are... You were good, Lord. You were always good and never, ever not good. So as I was saying, he worked seven years for his favorite wife's hand, only to be tricked on his wedding night into marrying Rachel's older sister, Leah, and then another seven years to finally marry Rachel, the bride that he actually wanted. And of course, Laban couldn't just let him leave after he married his two daughters, right? He has to work and establish himself as a man. He's got to earn a house. He's got to get, he's got to get paid, right? So it's just one thing after another after another. It was a, a hard road to hoe in the far country for Jacob. Jacob was put there by his own sin choices, but I want you to see something here. Even though Jacob's sin put him where he was at his uncle Laban's place, and even though he was paying the price for those sin choices, God was still there working things for Jacob's ultimate good. We see Jacob. Jacob is now now leaving his uncle's place. Now we take up back to the story here. He's on the run for his life. Again, this poor kid just cannot catch a break. Laban is angry and jealous because God has poured out his blessings upon Jacob, no matter how many times Laban has changed his wages. But God again is merciful to Jacob and, and accosts his uncle Laban in a dream, warning him not to harm Jacob. And the two men finally meet and they, they come to a covenantal understanding that, that neither will go after the other. Now, 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 finally, Jacob is free. He's free to leave and go home in peace. But yet Jacob's heart is still filled with trepidation. What will his older brother think of his return? Has his, anger, has his anger assuaged in the years? It's been a long time. Surely his father must be dead by now, right? And his mother, oh, to see her face again. Jacob sends emissaries to, to meet his brother Esau with gifts and flattery in order to, to gain favor in his brother's sight. And the messenger comes back, and the news seems at first at least not good at all because they simply tell Jacob that they saw his brother, and his brother's coming out to meet him, along with 400 of his best soldiers. Jacob's mind immediately turns fearful, as all our minds would be, right? Because why would anybody bring 400 dudes out to meet somebody unless it's to beat him up and take his stuff, right? So Jacob's heart turns fearful. And now Jacob's in pure and unadulterated panic mode. And when the pressure is on, Jacob defaults to his baser character. And the deceiver starts coming out. Jacob, Jacob starts dividing his property into two camps and hopes that if one is overtaken, the other might escape. 
And rather than, rather than trusting God, the same God who met him there uh, before he went to his uncle's house, the same God who, who spared his life with his brother, the same God who spared his life with his uncle, instead of trusting God for all his hope and salvation, he again keeps sending emissaries and servants with lavish gifts, with flattery, still hoping against hope that Esau's rage can be pacified. When we arrive at our text this morning, Genesis chapter 32, verse 22, take a look with me again. It says that same night he arose and took his wives, two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford at Gabak. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. So we see now God is setting the stage for the ultimate encounter he's about to have with Jacob. From the time Jacob left home and went to his uncle Laban's, he had, he had been building him for himself an identity. Jacob had become an enterprising man of vocation, a shepherd. He saw great success in his ventures, increasing the size of the flocks that he tended tenfold. He became a father, a husband, all good things. And at the fords of Jabbok, we see Jacob now sends the last remnants of what will soon be his former identity across the river. Here we see God stripping the layers of self-identification, the false notions of who we think we are away from us and separating us from them in order to hold out and give us something new and infinitely better. See, God has brought Jacob to this low place to begin a transformation. See, sometimes God will, will take relationships from us. Sometimes we lose jobs. It's not to punish you or to hurt you, but it's to get you to a place where God can remove idols, sometimes idols you didn't even know that you had in your life, idols that are good things, as we saw, but become God things in our life. And now we move to the, the second phase of Jacob's life, the encounter, the encounter that changed everything for him so look with me at verse 24 it says and jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day you see the text that we we look at this morning shows us three things about our individual struggle with god and the first i want you to see here is that we are alone in that struggle the life-altering encounter that we have with the living god cannot be lived for us through someone else our faith in god must ultimately be our own secured only through long, intense wrestling with God about who we are and who he really is and how those two things interact and infect the way we live our lives, the way we love other people as a result. Our faith must be our own. You see, we've seen in recent years a, a sort of mass exodus of young people leaving some, some churches upon graduation from high school, and there's a, a whole holy host of experts out there who claim to know all the reasons why, and they're more than willing to offer up their solutions for this dilemma. But the bottom line is this, folks. Young people, like all people, leave the church for whatever reason because they are living on a borrowed faith. That faith is borrowed from, from their, their parents, their grandparents, their Sunday school teachers, their youth pastors, their pastors, their friends. Borrowed, not owned. One of the hardest things about being a parent is, is desperately wanting Jackson and Mahalia to, to not have to suffer disappointment or, or anger or heartache or hurt. To desperately want them to get it right when it comes to Jesus. But this, this one simple, horrifying, terrifying truth keeps me up every single night. And that is that no matter how zealous I am, no matter how many months or years I spend studying under Pastor Mark and the, and the staff here, no matter how many years I go to seminary, no matter how much uh, pouring into them, I can do everything right. I can do everything required of me to raise my kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I can read the Bible with them cover to cover. But if they don't, that faith doesn't become their own. If they don't have the Holy Spirit inside of them, changing them, all that work is for them. But I have good news for you, parents. Here's some hope for you. That Holy Spirit, and only that Holy Spirit, it's not up to you, it's not up to me this morning. That Holy Spirit has enough power 
It has the evidence necessary to convince our children and ourselves with tempered steel resolve that Christ is alive and he is able to save this morning to the uttermost. So that's all right. Y'all can praise him. It's okay to do that. I promise. I'm not going to yell at you for it. (laughs) So what we see here is that we are alone in our wrestling. And when we come to God, we are naked. No titles, no labels to hide behind with him. Jesus sees, he sees through it all. And this is the first step. The first step in a genuine life-altering encounter with God. The second thing we see about this encounter is that when we encounter Jesus, he makes us confront our old self, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And like all reminders of past sin, it hurts, it stings. Like the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verse 16, Jesus tells her, go and call your husband and come on back. And she proceeds to tell Jesus as if he didn't already know that that she has no husband. And, and Jesus tells you, you know, you know what, woman, you're right. You, you don't have husband, a husband. You have, you've had five husbands. And the man you're now shacking up with, he doesn't even have the courage to marry you because he doesn't know what you got going on with your black widow thing, right? What you said is quite true. And so the woman, the woman was already suffering for her sin. We see that and we know that she had been, she had been living in her sin. She, she came to the well during the hottest portion of the day. Her shame had driven her away, away from community, away from the people. We know this because rather than coming in the morning in the cool of the day when it was far more comfortable, she chose to come later on in order to avoid the whispers of the other women working there. She couldn't take the judgy stares and the people not even being kind enough to say it to her, to her behind her back anymore. See, she had to be filleted open and her sin, her sin laid bare so that she could reach a place where she could receive the healing that she desperately longed for and needed. And some of us here this morning... Some of us here this morning are in desperate need of that healing as well. But we hold back because we're afraid. We're afraid that it's going to hurt and that it's going to sting, right? But I have some good news for you this morning. I wish nothing more than to encourage you that, that you don't have to be afraid to come to Jesus and be laid bare. He's gentle. He's kind. He's nothing, nothing like what you've heard of him. I promise you. He knows exactly what it takes to deliver you. And he's not willing, he loves you so much, he's not willing to let you sit there and lick your wounds as they fester with debris in them, getting worse and worse as time goes on. See, when seeking God, there is no, there is no shortcut. While Jacob secured his father Isaac's blessing through treachery and deceit, only through submission, only through submission can we obtain the blessing of God. And so too it is with us. We, we have to go through the, the pain and the night to reach the glory that comes in the morning. The scripture holds out something here in this this next passage that, that doesn't seem quite right at first glance. You see, the man in the story, in case you, you hadn't figured it out yet, the man in the story wrestling with Jacob, that's God Almighty himself. And the text tells us in the story here that, that the scripture says that the man, that is God in Abad, saw that he could not overpower him, Jacob. Now imagine that. The God who, who put the earth on his axis, right, who spins it on his finger like a basketball, that God, the God who put the Grand Canyon into place, the God who knows every single hair on your head and my head this morning, that God couldn't best a lowly shepherd boy, and not even a shepherd boy, a shepherd old man in a schoolyard game of WWE SmackDown? Are you for real? No, right? So the scripture goes on to say that, that he touched Jacob's hip and he wrenched it. And that, that touch, that word touched in Hebrew is, is nagah, okay? And it's a simple touch. It doesn't mean, bam, I love touched you in the face, boy. It's a, it's a simple, I touched you. It's just a simple touch that just so happened to contain all the, the power in the known universe behind it, right? So we see here... A beautiful demonstration of the gospel. We see God demonstrates a restraint here with Jacob and how much he loves Jacob. We see, we see here with Jacob, God showing the limitlessness of his mercy for us because he could have absolutely obliterated, which leads us to the third thing about our individual struggle and experience with God this morning. And that is when we encounter God, 
We have a true encounter with him that we are never, ever the same. See, verse 27 says, and he said to him, what is your name? God said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then God said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. So, so what's in a name? Well, our name is that, that word with which we identify ourselves and are identified by others. See, Jacob has been called a grabber, a deceiver, a manipulator, a liar, a grabber of things that aren't his, a thief. And he's been given that name from birth, and he was told from birth by this name given to him that he is not now and cannot ever be an honorable man. And his story of his life has been pitted against tensions between doing good and evil, between doing what is right and what is wrong. And he's found himself time and time and time again on the wrong side of situation after situation. The God confronts us and he doesn't pull any punches. He says, what's your name? God already, God already knows what it is. He already knows our sin. There's not one thing that's ever been in your past this morning. Hear me. There's not one thing that you've ever done that he doesn't know about. And there's not one thing that's ever happened to you in your life that alarm bells were going off in heaven about. Not, oh my goodness, this happened to him. I can't believe it. What are we going to do now, Jesus? That's not how any of that works. Not one thing surprises him. He knows it all. But we need to own who and what we are before we can receive who and what we were meant to become by Christ. See, God says, what's your name? And if we're brave and honest with ourselves, we say, I'm a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me. And then God, God gives his decree and God says that that's not who you are anymore. When we come to God and we say, forgive me, Lord, I'm a sinner. Lord, I, we lay ourselves at the feet of Jesus. We get this, this new identity. God says that's not who you are anymore. You're no longer the thief. You're no longer the liar, the manipulator, the drinker. You're no longer the angry bird. You're no longer the, the evil person anymore. That's not who you are anymore. You're no longer a slave controlled by your own wickedness and your own desires. You're no longer controlled by your own ambitions and your own limitations. When Jesus rescues us, he gives us a new name and with it, a new identity, a new status to the world around us. And what kind of new name does he give us? Is it a loser name, an inferior name? No, no, no. He says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Look, the King James, King James translation actually uses the word prince. It says, for as a prince, you have struggled with God. It comes from the, the masculine form of the word Sarah, Sarai. That means that, that we, are, we are given, check this out. That means that the name Israel carries with it the connotation of a prince or princess of God. Do you see that? The name Jacob carried the, the connotation, the burden of thief, a liar, manipulator. But his new name carries the crown of a prince. That's you and that's me this morning. You guys should be set on fire by that. That's you and that's me this morning. You're princes and princesses of God because of what Christ has done for you. We have a victorious name, a, a new name, a name fit for a champion. We're the people of God now. So we're never the same. We become that living proof of life after death. And so what does that life after death look like? We, we move now to, to Israel's life because he's no longer known as Jacob forevermore. Whenever we hear stories of people who are irrevocably changed by the gospel, we see certain commonalities about their life, right? Certain, uh, their tangible, noticeable, sometimes even visual marks of, of a transformed life. And people don't talk the same, right? They don't, they don't act the same. Their priorities are different. They don't center their lives around themselves anymore. They center their, their lives around Jesus and the gathering of the body. The way they view themselves is different than before. And life after death is marked by God's blessings, and those blessings are real. And they mark the Christian life in powerful ways. Our text gives us two of such blessings here. We look in verse 29 to 30 here. When we encounter the true and living God, we, we leave that encounter with a new life story. We have a, a new testimony. 
See, I talked to you about how, how we receive a new identity, how we're never the same. We have a story, and that, that story, it still has a past, right? I come to Jesus. I give him my life. I, I pray the prayer. Some of us have done that before, and then we walk out, and we're like, I don't understand. Why is it so hard for me to, to continue on in this? Why is it so difficult for me? But the, the thing we have to realize here, folks, is that when we come to Jesus, everybody here has a past, right? And parts of that story that we wish just weren't there. But when we come to Jesus, that, that life and that story now takes on a new connotation. It has a new, new context to it. You see, the things about my past that I wish weren't there, they no longer bring about shame and guilt anymore. They don't have the power to do that over me anymore. Now when I look back at those things that I was ashamed of, my heart is filled with pride. Not pride in me or what I've done, but pride in my Savior and what Jesus has done in me and through me. We have a new name, a new identity. We have a new testimony. Our life and our life story changes dramatically and takes on a completely different context when Jesus finds us. The things that once brought about our shame and guilt now point us to the greater glory of Christ. For Paul tells us that anyone who is in Christ is a what? A new creation. That's right. The old has what? Passed away. Behold, look, see, the new has come. And the second blessing that we get here that our text shows us this morning is the blessing of a lasting legacy. In verse 31, it says, The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Remember that encounter leaves us changed, right? Sometimes visibly and noticeably. So remember that encounter. Now look here in verse 32. It says, Therefore, therefore, that means that because of the limping in his hip, because of what God did in Jacob that night in that wrestling match, to this day the people of Israel, that means the people of God, the princes and princesses of God. God has enacted something that is everlasting, a lasting change in the people of God, a lasting legacy that comes from this life-altering death and resurrection to newness of life. We forget the whole story of the gospel sometimes. We, we tend to think, that oh, if you walk up to anybody off the street, they'll tell you, do you know about Jesus? Oh, yeah, man, he, 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 he died for my sins. He was the perfect one who, who died for my sins. And the story just stops there. But what we, we and myself even often sometimes neglect is the rest of the story. We neglect the rest of the story, and in so doing, we leave behind the power to walk out this newness of life that we receive from the Holy Spirit. Guess what, folks? Your God's not dead this morning. He's alive. He's seated at the right hand of God. Jesus is not dead. We worship a murdered Savior who didn't stay murdered. He rose again on the third day, and he did that for you and for me. He beat death this morning for you and for me. We neglect that story, and we leave behind the Holy Spirit. Some of us, like Jacob this morning, some of us have been running for our lives our whole life. Some of us have been afraid of what the elder brother's going to do when we come home. Some of us have been afraid to give up the life that we've made for ourselves of letting go of that identity that we've made for ourselves in the far country. Some of us are afraid to let go of the past hurts that have happened to us. And I want to I want to share something real briefly with you that uh, an encouragement that I'm not negating what has happened to you. Some of you have had some really horrific and horrible experiences, and I'm, I'm sorry for that. That's not good. Those things are not good. And God doesn't say that those things are good, that you should magically just swipe them under the rug. He doesn't say that. God loves you this morning. He's holding out a new identity for you. That sin identity, that, that bad stuff that happened to you or around your life, that's because of sin that entered the world. That's not because of God. And he doesn't tell us, he doesn't tell us to ignore reality that these bad things happen to you. But what he does offer is he offers a healing. He offers a new beginning. He offers you freedom to let go of those past hurts and to embrace this new identity, this, this much, much better identity. He tells us to come to him, all who are weary, all who are tired and heavy laden and heavy burdened, that he will give you rest 
And what he's holding out for you this morning is a yoke that is easy and a burden that is incredibly, incredibly light for you this morning. We see the picture of the gospel this morning in Jacob's broken hip. I, I, we've already in, engaged in communion, but I, I wanted you to see this here. We see, a, we see a symbolism, a foreshadowing of what happened with Christ on the cross and Jacob's busted hip this morning. Christ's body that was broken for you and broken for me. It says that he was scourged. That means that his flesh was literally ripped off his bones by a cat of nine tails. He was beaten, mocked, and scorned, and forced to, to wear a crown of thorns, all the while having the ability to call down legion upon legion of warrior angels to come and rescue him. And don't you know those, those angels up in heaven, boy, man, they were just foaming at the mouth going, let me at him, Jesus. Especially when that one cat in the crowd was all like, yeah, you're the Savior, right? Why don't you call down angels to come and save you? Don't you know that there were just countless legions just standing up, slamming their armor together in one loud sound, ready to come down and pounce on that fool, messing with their beloved Savior and their beloved Creator. You know, I want you to see that just like with Jacob, where God demonstrated his mercy by touching his hip with a touch, Jesus demonstrated his mercy with us and his submission to his Father's grander plan. And he stayed on that cross this morning. He didn't come down. It's important to realize and recognize that one sentiment there, that he had the ability to come down, folks, but he submitted himself to the Father. Just as I said earlier, that while Jacob secured his father's blessing, his earthly father's blessing through treachery and deceit, there's only one way this morning, there's only one way to come to obtain God's blessing, and that is through willing submission to his grander plan for your life. Some of us have been hurt. It's a natural thing in a fallen world, unfortunately. I promise you that he is good. I've said it a thousand times. He is good. He is always good. And he is never, ever not good. And you can trust that his plans for your life are good. He loves you. You don't have to be afraid to come to him and open yourself. I promise you, he's nothing, nothing like what you think. So in Jesus, it is finished. He says, yo, death, where's your sting? Nowhere. Not for my bride this morning. The war is over, folks. But through the cross and his body broken and his shed blood, it is finished. There's... There's still battles, folks, that we have to encounter every day. But it's a battle in a war that's already been won. It's a battle against an enemy who is in a full-scale scorched-earth retreat. And what we have to do is, as followers of Jesus this morning is walk in the knowledge and the understanding that everything that we need to walk out this Christian life, we already possess and we already have in Jesus. You're not here this morning to re- receive some five ways to a better you some three ways to, to letting go and letting God. That's not, that's not what we do here. That's not what's going to help you this morning. We turn our eyes to the one who has already done everything this morning. And I'm, I'm going to ask everybody to, to bow their heads and close their, close their eyes with me now. I'm not, I'm not going to pull on your emotions this morning and have somebody come in and, and play some instruments or anything like that. I want you to have a very real wrestling with God moment this morning, just as, as Jacob had with God. I want you to listen to his, his voice this morning. He says, let me go, but you're going to continue to stay there and wrestle with him. He sees that hurt that you just won't let go of. He sees that thing that you keep putting your hope in instead of Jesus. He sees that thing, and he wants to take that from you. And I want you to, in, in your own words, just there quietly to yourself with you and God and nobody else, just to tell him that you let go this morning. I surrender, Lord. I submit. I give my life, everything to you. God, even if, even if my plans for my life, the dreams and the hopes and the aspirations that I've had, even if those things don't come true, even if, even if I don't get to have kids, even if I don't get to have the, the life, the career that I want, God, even if I don't, even if I don't get to have the, the husband that I want or the wife that I want, even if I don't get to have the, 
the family that I want, the, the reconciliation of my mom and my dad back together, any of that stuff, even if none of those things work out for me, Lord, I submit to you. I submit, Lord, that you know things that I don't, that I can't possibly. I submit that, that you have a, a greater plan for my life than anything that I could ever come up with for myself. Father, I surrender to you this morning. I submit, I submit to your plans for my life. I submit and commit to following Jesus from now until the rest of my life. Father, I want your, I want your lasting legacy. I want your new testimony. Father, I'm going, to trade, I'm going to trade my ashes this morning for your beauty. Father, heal me. Make me whole. Make me new. Father, I thank you this morning that today there are some in this room who have made a decision to follow Jesus. Father, and I, I pray that your blessings would just be in and on and through them uh, as they go out and they, they walk this newness of life that they've received from the Holy Spirit this morning out. Father, I pray that they would be shaped and molded into the image of Jesus, Father. Give them strength. Give us strength, Father. Wisdom and courage to seek out what it means to follow Jesus, Father, within a, a community of fellow believers that, that love you and are focused on walking this newness of life thing out this morning. Thank you, God, for your glory, that your richness, Father, that your renown infects and affects every fiber of our being, that we are, we are leaving this place this morning, Father, changed and made irrevocably new, God. Thank you, Father. Thank you that through Jesus we are given the privilege, Lord, to die the death of Jacob, our old self, Father, and to enter into new life, into the new birth of Israel, Father, into the people of God, Lord. You are good. You are always good, Lord, and you are, you are never, ever not good. Thank you for making all things new, and especially for making all things new in us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have this morning, through the Holy Spirit stirring your affections for Jesus, if you have made a decision to commit your life to following Jesus this morning, please don't leave here without coming and finding Pastor Mark, Pastor Dave, or myself. Uh, we would love to, to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus and what it looks like for your next steps in life. We'd love to pray with you and celebrate because it, it tells us in God's Word that greater is the celebration over one sinner who repents than over 10,000 righteous persons who have no need of repentance. We want to we wanna celebrate with the host of heaven over what has happened in your heart this morning, over what the Holy Spirit's done in you. I love you guys. Thank you for the opportunity to love you and bless you. Oh, Paul, thanks. Good job, bud. Love you, bud. Good job. Man, wasn't that good? Praise God. Ah, boy, that kind of puts a, a lot of stuff in perspective, doesn't it? Doesn't it? You think you're wrestling and so that God can destroy you. You're, ble- you're, you're wrestling so that God can bless you and change your name. Boy, that's good stuff.